This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. My name is Andrew and it's always a privilege that we can spend time together. We're now right at the last section of the halfway point of Isaiah. We have taken this journey right from Isaiah chapter 1. It was uh, uphill and downhill and plenty of things happening. And now as we reach this last section up to um, this, this first half of Isaiah, let us ask God to help us to engage with His Word. Will you pray with me? Oh dear Father, you are a God who is patient, you are a God who has sinned. The first day that we were born, you have journeyed with us in our ups and downs. You know our ups and downs from the week or month past, and you know what is ahead in the years ahead. So Father, at this point on this Sunday, we pray God that as we have gathered, that your Holy Spirit will calm us down. Your Holy Spirit will help us to bring our minds and our hearts and our will focused upon your word this morning so that as we engage with your truth, that your Holy Spirit will engage our hearts. We pray all this for your glory and yours alone. Amen. <laughs> when the Lord of the Rings ended in 2003, the, the fans were heartbroken, if you were one of those fans uh, or old enough. No one wanted the Lord of the Rings to end. No one wanted the story of the Middle Earth to end. They want the story to go on and on. So nearly after, after nearly 10 years of outcry, Peter Jackson finally gave the fans a prequel called The Hobbits. This prequel tells the stories of the Middle Earth and also mentions about the precious ring before the famous Lord of the Rings trilogy. A prequel is a story which happened before the story everyone has already heard. The Hobbits was a prequel to The Lord of the Rings. Now, whenever a Hollywood movie becomes a box office hit, the filmmakers will want to make as many movies of the same story again and again to earn more money. And when the story runs out, they go to the prequel, to the stories before the stories that everyone already knows. Now, I remember going to the cinema in 1999 to watch Star Wars 1, The Phantom Menace, which was really a prequel to the famous Star Wars of the 70s and 80s. In fact, The Phantom Menace tells the story of the famous um, guy called, well, to be called Darth Vader. He was a potentially great uh, Jedi Knight who turned evil, and that was what the, pre, uh, the prequel tells. A story is a pre- a prequel is a story which comes before the story that everyone has already heard. So after the climatic account of the war on faith in Isaiah 36, 37 that we saw last week, we now come to Isaiah 38 and 39, which is really a prequel to the famous war. On faith. Scholars are not always able to agree the exact year it happened, but some suggested that this could even have happened in 702 BC, a year before the war by Sennacherib. The story in today's passage takes one step back from the famous war on faith from last week to give us a glimpse of an earlier battle that the king Hezekiah had to fight. It is not a national war. 
It's a personal fight. It's a personal battle within his heart. A battle he partially fought well, but he partially failed. Even the best amongst us humans, even the best of our human kings, they will fail. So today's passage tells the story of a struggle within a human heart and the rescue God must provide. It is the story that explains why the book of Isaiah does not end in victory of last week's chapter, but it will have to go on to Isaiah 40 all the way to 66. So if we are to give a title for today's story, it will be an anti-climax title, which will be called Even the Best Amongst Us Fail. So I'd like to invite us now to step forward into chapter 38, which is really a step backwards before the Great War that we looked at last week. So if you have your Bible open, could I invite you to turn to Isaiah 38? I'll read for us verse 1. Isaiah 38, verse 1. In those days, Hezekiah became ill and was at the point of death. The prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, went to him and said, This is what the Lord says, Put your house in order, because you are going to die. You will not recover. Now the Bible tells us elsewhere in 2 Kings 18 that King Hezekiah was a good king. He became a king when he was 25, and he had lived well. The Bible compared Hezekiah repeatedly to, to his father, King David. He lived as one like King David and did what was right in God's eyes. Hezekiah was a brave king in his time. He did not behave like King Ahaz. He had removed high places. He has uh, smashed the sacred stones and cut down the Asherah poles that people worship. In fact, he broke the bronze serpent that Moses had erected in the wilderness because people have started to even worship that serpent. In fact, the Bible has written that there were no other kings in Judah who was like Hezekiah because Hezekiah was like David. He would fast before the Lord. He would keep the commands given by Moses. And like David, Hezekiah was also successful in many battles to the neighboring Philistines in his young age. Like David, he was devoted to the Lord. We could read more of his devotion and his faithfulness in the Bible. But when he turned around 39 years of age, Hezekiah became ill, very ill. And the prophet Isaiah came with the news that he would die and so he should put his house in order. Now for Hezekiah who was sick in his bed when he heard this, it was a very, very heavy blow. And you could imagine why. Because Hezekiah, he was still in the prime of his years. He was making progress in his kingdom. He had been cleaning up idolatries among the people of God. He was like his ancestor David whom he sought to model after. And perhaps Hezekiah was hoping that he would see the blessings of God in his time because God had given many promises to David's descendant. And to make the matter worse, Hezekiah barely had an heir old enough to take his throne. We are told in 2 Kings 21 that his son became king at the age of 12. 
So whether his son co-reigned with Hezekiah his last years or independently, if God had not given Hezekiah 15 more years, everything would be undone. So we could imagine how traumatic this news would have been to Hezekiah. Would a servant be sitting on his throne? Would a relative reign on behalf of his own son? Now one thing that's admirable about Hezekiah as we look at today's passage, that he is a man of prayer. He prays. While King Ahaz, his father, refuses to seek God, we hear repeatedly that Hezekiah was a man of prayer. He prays. Even when he could not go to the temple physically, he turns to God in times of crisis. Now, after Isaiah had announced the news, possibly at Hezekiah's royal bedroom because he's too sick for court duties, Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and then he wept bitterly before the Lord saying, Remember Lord, remember how I have walked before you faithfully and with wholehearted devotion and have done what is good in your eyes. Now we do not know if Hezekiah grieved because no one was ready to take his throne. But we do know from his poem later on that he was afraid to die. The direction of his prayer was correct. For in times of danger, whether national or personal, Hezekiah would turn to the Lord. But his fear of death turned his cry into an attempt to bargain based on good works. Listen to how he has spoken. I have walked before you faithfully. I have given wholehearted devotion. I have done what is good in your eyes. It was a plea by Hezekiah, a bitter plea in the face of mortality, in the face of death, that having done so much spiritual good, would his life actually end this way? It was a prayer mixed with faithfulness and bitter tears. God's glory and personal bargains. Now here is the prayer of a good king whom in the face of his personal mortality was unable to pray, not my will but yours be done. Hezekiah was a good king, but he is nevertheless not strong enough when it comes to death. So as Hezekiah cried bitterly before God, God in his mercy hears Hezekiah's prayer and called the prophet Isaiah before he even got out of the palace to make a U-turn back to bring news of relief to Hezekiah. Now, even before Hezekiah left, the, Isaiah left the palace, he came back and said this to Hezekiah in verse 5 and 6. I will add 15 years to your life, and verse 6, I will deliver you and this city from the hand of king of Assyria. I will defend this city. Now, dear friends, I want us to just pause and listen to the amazing answer from God. Not only will God extend Hezekiah's life by 15 years, God would help Hezekiah and Jerusalem stand in the coming war on faith when Sennacherib arrived in 701 BC for their throne. Now Hezekiah's faith was so strengthened after he recovered from his illnesses that by the time Sennacherib came for Jerusalem, Hezekiah was ready to believe that God is faithful and powerful enough. At that time, he no longer tries to bargain with God. At that time, he asked God to reveal his own glory. 
God has strengthened Hezekiah's faith through the personal battle here for the coming national war he will face. God in his compassion not only answers Hezekiah's personal prayer, he also prepares Hezekiah for the national crisis that will soon come. So this prequel, today's passage, does give us a glimpse of how Hezekiah grew in his faith to come. But in the meantime, there's something that you and I need to take note in this particular prayer by Hezekiah for his own health. Because as you look at verse 5 with me, notice that God did not say he will extend Hezekiah's life because of Hezekiah's good works. Take a look at it. Rather, God first declares to Hezekiah that he is the Lord, the God of your father, David. God says he remembers David before he says he hears Hezekiah's prayer. God remembers his promise to David and God has compassion on Hezekiah. In fact, in a similar account in 2 Kings 20 verse 6, God said this. He said in 2 Kings 20, he says, I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city from the hands of the king of Assyria. I will defend this city for my sake and for the sake of my servant, David. No, dear friends, in times of struggle, you and I, we may actually find that our own prayers may not always be perfect. Think about your own prayers. But we do have a God who remembers His promises, and we have a God who is always compassionate on you and me, for those who genuinely turn to Him in their struggles. Now, King Hezekiah's prayer was less than perfect, but it was genuine. And God remembers David and showed compassion on Hezekiah's bitter plea. I wonder if you have similar experience in your prayer life, where God answers, God answers your prayer in crisis, even when your prayer is not perfect. In fact, He answers your prayer not because of how good you are, but because of how compassionate He is. Now, I remember the various times when my plea to God was not first for His glory, but merely for my relief. Whether those days of sickness or sorrows or desperation, there were no lengthy prayer from me to God, how great you are, but it's a desperate plea for God that, can you please help me? Perhaps I might even throw in some bargain. God, if you help me, I will work harder, I will be godlier, I will love better, I will try my best to be better. I don't know about your prayers, in times of your desperation. Have you ever had those experiences when you turn to God with desperation, with imperfect prayer, but yet God answers you? On those days, may we quickly remember that God never answers prayers because He owes us a debt or because we can offer Him anything better. It was all His grace because God is not like false gods if we look around whom we can butter trade by doing something good or giving them something in exchange. God never butter trades. But God is gracious. Our God answers our prayer out of His sheer compassion. Because God remembers His promise to David, which is fulfilled in Jesus, our King. And God knows how vulnerable you and I are in times of desperation. 
Now, the focus of Hezekiah's crisis in this portion is not his good works, but on God's compassion on him. So as Hezekiah recovers, he penned down a poem that sings of God's deliverance of him from the peril of death. Have a look at verse 9 with me. Verse 9. A writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, after his illness and recovery. I said, in the prime of my life, must I go through the gates of death and be robbed of the, year, of the rest of my years? You know, when Hezekiah recovers and pans his reflection, he acknowledged how he was struggling bitterly at the gates of death. He described how his life was robbed from him in verse 11, how he had to leave the land of the living. If you look at verse 12, how God pulled down his tent, or verse 13, that God was like a lion who breaks his bones. Whether we read Hezekiah's poem positively or negatively, one thing is clear. Hezekiah recognizes that it is God who determines how long he lives. Look at verse 12. He says, Like a weaver, I have rolled up my life, and he has cut me off from the loom. Now, dear friends, our world always calls us to live out our potential. I'm not sure if you recognize that. Our world wants us to live our potential, to weave the best stories of your life and my life. You know, the self-help, the personal development, the motivational industries are multi-billion dollars. And sometimes they do give helpful, worldly wisdom. However, only those who acknowledge God can truly recognize what Hezekiah has to say here in verse 12. Whatever patterns you and I want to weave from the loom, the picture of our lives, it has a limit. For when God comes and cut off the threads from the loom, the picture ends. No, we must live recognizing who really holds the scissors to our lives. And so it is, writes Hezekiah regarding his life. When God cuts off the threads, the weaving ends. Death rests in God's hands. Now I've got a grandmother who is still alive and 93. She is good at her knitting. She loves knitting and she's pretty good at it. Even though her eyesight has failed her, she can't see but she could weave. She can often weave without looking. She can, in fact, if you give her paper bags, those uh, shopping center bags with, with nylons or with threads, she will be able to untie those things and make a shirt out of it. And one thing she unintentionally taught me, it's not knitting, I can't knit. One thing she taught me is that over the years, no matter how skillful she can be, the knitting stops when the thread runs out. The knitting always stops when the threads run out. You and I, in all the weaving of our lives, we need to learn from Hezekiah that those and those who have been brushed by death no matter how good you are, you and I are in our traits, in your skills, in what you are doing, or how ferocious we are in making the most of our lives, how successful it may be in the eyes of the world, it always ends when the thread runs out or when God cuts from the loom. Everything ends. 
Hezekiah from verse 9 to 14, he paints a raw and very complex picture of how he struggled as life slips through his fingers. The prospects of eyes growing dim, of not being able to live in the land of the living, no longer being with friends and loved ones whose breath are still going strong. Hezekiah struggles between faith and fear. He could only look to God and cry out, verse 14, Lord, come to my aid. No, dear friends, many of us, many of us will face the same journey Hezekiah took and the need to trust in God in the midst of a raw and complex life. Will we come to God and acknowledge that He has total control? As Hezekiah gives a very moving account of his brush with death, he then turns to speak about a second chance that God has for him in verse 15 to 20. And as he says this, he resolves that he will start walking his remaining years humbly before God. Look at verse 15. But what can I say? He has spoken to me and he himself has done this. I will walk humbly all my years because of this anguish of my soul. Not only did Hezekiah recognize every second chance always comes from God, he also recognized further on that suffering is not meant to turn him away from God. Suffering is meant for him to look to God and find that God has always been loving him. Look at verse 17. I wonder if you can say that in your anguish. Surely it was for my benefit that I suffered such anguish. In your love, you kept me from the pit of destruction. You have put all my sins behind your back. No, no one likes sufferings. I don't, and if I make a guess, neither do you. None of us like sufferings. Yet, often like Hezekiah, when we look back to the sufferings we had, we'll find that God has always been good. That God has always cared. And God has compassion that you didn't see in your days of suffering. He loves us. And for us, we can even see in this side of the cross that He has done that impossible work of sending Jesus on the cross so that at the cross and at the shedding of the blood of Jesus that He can put all your sin and my sin behind Him and show us even more unrestricted compassion. Now, like Hezekiah's words in verse 19 to 20, we have a God who deserves to be praised and His faithfulness to be told all the days of our lives. So dear friends, as the crisis of Hezekiah in verse 1 to 8 reminds us to turn to God who is compassionate and remembers His promises, the poem of Hezekiah here in verse 9 to 20 calls us to reflect on our lives even as God shows His compassion on us. Now, so often you and I, we are quick to ask in prayers. We pray very quickly, but we pray very slowly. We pray and ask God for help, and when He comes, we forget to reflect and praise God. Perhaps we should be like Hezekiah, that we'll pause 
and think of God's compassion on us. Whether you are someone who journals or you don't, perhaps today, this week, is better, is as good as any other week for us to pause and to reflect on all God has done, His goodness in our lives. That first of all, we will reflect that God is in control. That we will recognize God's compassion. And we will learn to respond to God rightly. Would you consider doing that this week, perhaps even tonight? It's as good as any other days to pause, to reflect on God's control, to recognize His compassion, to respond to God rightly. But we should go on to this, back to Isaiah, because as God had declared and so it happened, Hezekiah was so miraculously healed that the news went far and wide. No, the king of Babylon, when he on his TV and tuned into the ancient channel news network, he hears of Hezekiah's miraculous recovery and he saw it as an opportunity to win an ally for his anti-Assyrian campaign. And so, chapter 39, verse 1. At that time, Maduk Beladan, son of Beladan, king of Babylon, he sent Hezekiah letters and a gift because he had heard of his illness and recovery. You know, when the Babylonian envoys arrived from a long distance at Jerusalem with a gift, Hezekiah became greatly flattered that the great Babylon would travel all the way to visit him. Now remember, at this moment, Jerusalem was still under real threat by Assyria. Tension is real, enemies are there. So worldly wisdom kicks in for Hezekiah. The enemies of my enemies are my friends. He must have read those self-help books. And so Hezekiah welcomed the powerful new ally. In fact, to prove how valuable Jerusalem will be to the Babylonians, Hezekiah gladly showed them everything in his storehouses, the silver, the gold, the spices. He showed, up, showed him all the armories. You know, like a little pig inviting the notorious wolf into the house and then showing everything that he has. There was nothing that Hezekiah had that he did not show the envoys. No, like a young man who forgets all his promises the moment he gets invited by the coolest girl in college for the wild parties. He threw everything that he knew and he said aside and he dig in. So Hezekiah forget all he had said about walking humbly before the Lord and that God has personally promised to rescue them from Assyria. He saw Babylonian envoys here and he says, Alright, let's do this together. No faith gave way to flattery. Humility is lost to pride. Hezekiah had clung on to his faith in times of crisis, but had let go of it in good days. In the moment of pride, he did not seek the Lord, nor depend on God. Now the Achilles' heels of Hezekiah was revealed. Babylon's flattery by sending envoys to him inflates the pride of Hezekiah. Now, if chapter 38 that we saw reveals Hezekiah is merely a human, a mortal, chapter 39 reveals that he is fallible. In his pride, Hezekiah started to think that everything is about him. Now, while Hezekiah had revealed a faith like David, 
in the toughest time, now Hezekiah reveals a folly like David in the best time. Do you remember the story of David? At the peak of his career, his success, his kingdom, he forgot that Jerusalem belongs to God. He thought it was about him, and so he looked out his window, and he decided everything is his and he could take, including somebody else's wife. It brought David great judgment. So Hezekiah, after recovery from his health, he soon forgets his own poem, that life belongs to God, and so he decides to showcase everything that he has. Even when the prophet Isaiah rushed back to the palace demanding to know what did the envoy say, where did they come from, what have they seen, Hezekiah pridefully replies, well, just visitors from afar paying their respect to me. So I showed them everything in my palace, all of my treasures. Hezekiah didn't even bother to share what the envoy said to Isaiah. And it's here, it is here that Isaiah revealed a very sad revelation from the Lord. Everything that you showed Babylon, Hezekiah, including all that your predecessors have accumulated all this time, all will be carried off to Babylon. And verse 7, your descendants, your own flesh and blood who will be born to you, they will be taken away and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. You know, Hezekiah, the dreadful judgment will not come from Assyria. It will come from Babylon. But to that news, Hezekiah, instead of repenting right away, replied with a shockingly perverse answer. Verse 8. The word of the Lord you have spoken is good, Hezekiah replied. For he thought there will be peace and security in my lifetime. Now, like David, who at the moment of sin changed from a man after God's own heart to a dirty old man lasting for someone's wife. So here Hezekiah, at the moment of his sin, changed from a man who said he would live humbly before God to a self-centered man who cared only for his own security in the remaining 15 years of grace. Do you see the similarity of David and the greatness, but also the horror of sin? Now sadly, this will be the last time we hear of this good king in the book of Isaiah. This prequel, Isaiah 38 and 39, reveals the faith that Hezekiah would later have in God in a war on faith. It will reveal that. But it also reveals the failure of Hezekiah, showing us that even the best among us, even the best amongst the kings, they fail. As the rest of history was sadly revealed to us, Hezekiah's son, Manasseh, he turned out to be an evil king most of his life. Now Hezekiah's son, he reigned longer than any previous kings in history, where he not only brought back idol worship, he set up altars inside God's own temple for others. 
Second Kings 21 recorded how Minasseh had so much innocent blood in his hands that he filled Jerusalem from one end to the other. And God's judgment would be inevitable. God's judgment will have to come. Now dear friends, as we round up, the glaring question for us is this. Why is Isaiah 38 and 39 recorded here? Why not before last week's passage? I think it is clear here that it is to show us without a doubt that there is no salvation that can be found in mortals. There is no rescue, eternal rescue from unstable humans. No matter how good they or we try to be, it is to unpack how inconsistent we can be in the battle of our hearts and how easily we are tempted to turn our eyes from the God we love for the sake of our own skin. You know, an old lady was crossing the road when she fell down and she bruised her knee badly. The, the oranges, the fruits were all scattered on the road. A young teenager saw it and he ran over, picked her up, put the things back, and in fact put it in his own bag so that he can walk her home safely. When she arrived home, you know, the bruises, he cleans up for her and she was so amazed. She said, young man, you have such a good heart. Can you tell me which school you're from? Give me the, the, the number of your parents so that I can tell them so that more people can be like you. To that, the young man blushed. And he said, please don't. I'm supposed to be in school now. I'm meeting my friends for movies and I pass you by. Do we have stories like that in our own lives? That one aspect people see, oh, how nice a person you are. And in your heart it says, if only you know who I am or what I have done. The account of Isaiah 38, 39 is written not for us to point our finger at Hezekiah and say how a failure he is, but to recognize even the best amongst us are not good enough, are not powerful enough, are not strong enough to escape God's judgment. As today's chapter ends, Babylon is already stationed at the horizon and the rest of Isaiah has to deal with our human crisis. Whom can rescue us from judgment? Who is strong enough not to fail? God's people will need a king greater than Hezekiah, even David, a servant who never gives in to threat or flattery. We need a saviour who is congruent, who refuses to display his glory out of pride in the face of death, he submits humbly to God. He does not display glory out of pride. And in the face of death, he submits humbly to God with these words, Not my will, but yours be done. That servant we know is Jesus, and we will hear more about him from the rest of Isaiah that has to come. So as we close, may we learn that we must trust and rely on God at every occasion of our lives, both in tough times 
and in good times. And may we see clearly that none of us, not even the best amongst us, can be saved from sin and pride and death by our own efforts. We need someone greater than the best amongst us. Would you pray with me as we close this chapter? Well, dear Heavenly Father, we recognize that you govern this universe and our lives. Help us to trust and rely on you every moment of our lives. We also recognize that your compassion is the only reason we are living now. So would you help us walk humbly before you in times of suffering and in good times? For we cannot be saved from sin and pride and death by our own ability. So please, please forgive. Please save us. Only because of what Jesus has already done on the cross for us. And all this we pray for your glory and for yours alone. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bcpc.sg.